You're listening to the Fitness and Wellness Class, powered by NASM. NASM's new subscription service, NASM Connected, is the best value in fitness. When you sign up, you'll get access to everything you'll need to expand your career, master new disciplines, and stay up to date with your certification in one great package. Gain instant access to over 350 online fitness courses available anywhere, anytime, on any device. Earn CEUs for dozens of approved providers. Plus, unlock articles, webinars, videos, and podcasts from the biggest names in fitness. Don't wait. Sign up today and unlock the best content in fitness at the best price. Get connected at nasm.org connected or call one 800 460 6276. Hi, my name is Katie Coles, and I'm the Chief Science Officer and Co-Founder of Avatar Nutrition. I'm also a registered dietitian, and I have my master's degree in nutrition. I'm also a former NPC fitness competitor. My experience as a fitness competitor is actually ultimately what led me to go back to school and become a registered dietitian. But before that, I used to do all these crazy, super restrictive fresh diets to get lean for the stage. And it never really worked because even though I would get lean enough for my shows, afterwards I would end up binging and I would just end up putting all the weight that I lost back on. And my story isn't unique. This is really common. In fact, only about 15% of people who lose more than 10% of their body weight are able to keep that off over the long term. So let's look at a few more stats. A meta-analysis pooled the results of 29 different weight loss studies, and they found that more than half of lost weight is regained after just two years. And more than 80% of lost weight is regained after five years. So this observation, along with the idea that metabolism can slow to fight continued weight loss and promote weight regain has caused some people to think that dieting just doesn't work. So there was this diet backlash where people were saying diets don't work. And um, it even sparked this whole diet revolution. So people are saying, okay, if I lose weight, I go through all the effort of this. And that leaves me with a slower metabolism and I'm eating less food just to maintain my weight. Why should I even try to diet in the first place? It doesn't work. So what's going on here? Why is it so hard to keep lost weight off? And is it even possible to keep lost weight off? And if so, what are the secrets to doing this? That's what we're going to discuss today. So here's our game plan. In this session, you're going to learn what factors make it difficult to keep lost weight off the key principles behind weight loss, how metabolism adapts to dieting, how changes in your appetite and the food environment promote weight regain, and how to set yourself or your client up for sustainable weight loss results. Okay, so why is it so hard to keep lost weight off? I have this pie chart here that shows some of the reasons. And probably the most important one is this lack of nutrition knowledge. So when people don't understand how weight loss works, that leads them to start unsustainably dieting. They start crash dieting, they start fad dieting. And when they do this, they're picking up these behaviors that they can't continue to do once the weight's off. So that leads to this massive weight regain. And then there's the slowing of metabolism that occurs as you lose weight. And when this happens, you end up having to eat less after your diet is finished just to maintain the weight you lost. And that can be really hard for people. There's also hormonally mediated increases in hunger. So there's this change in the way that your brain perceives food and you end up feeling less satisfied after weight loss and more hungry. And that can cause you to overeat. So your body is trying to get you to eat more to put on that lost weight. And that is combined with this widespread availability of convenient, high-calorie, super delicious foods. And these foods are all around us, right? They're like at fast food restaurants. Even if you go to like, say, a CVS, when you go to try to check out, there's this candy aisle loaded with things like king-size M&Ms and Snickers bars. So it can be hard to avoid eating that sort of food. Okay. 
so all of that is kind of this perfect storm that leads to eating more after the weight is off. But the biggest thing that impacts somebody's ability to keep the lost weight off is a lack of nutrition knowledge, because ultimately that leads to fad dieting. I mean, think about it. If you don't know how weight loss works, you're probably going to fall victim to these marketing ploys that are pitching all these diets that, you know, say fast weight loss, you know, and you end up falling victim to that. And the truth is traditional restrictive diets end up setting people up for weight regain. So this is called the yo-yo dieting cycle. And here's how it works. Let me direct your attention here to this graphic. So let's say you're interested in weight loss, but you're not sure how to do it. And then you see this diet ad that promises fast weight loss. So you're like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. So even though this diet has a lot of really restrictive rules, you end up giving it a try. And lo and behold, you lose weight. Success. Everything seems like it's going really good and you're really highly motivated. But then at some point, you just can't stick to those restrictions. You end up wanting to live again, wanting to go out and eat with your friends. You know, you, you thinking about the foods you used to enjoy and you start eating them again and then you fall off away again and you end up regaining all of the weight you lost. So then you start looking for the next revolutionary diet that's going to hopefully give you lasting results this time. So that's how it all works. And that's why it's so important to understand the science behind weight loss, because when you understand how dieting works, you tend to diet in a way that's more sustainable and that can help you keep it off long-term. So we're gonna talk about that next, but just to let you know, I did go into really good um, in-depth detail about this in my presentation, how to keep, or excuse me, how to personalize your weight loss diet. So if you haven't watched that, I suggest going back and doing that when you get a chance. All right, so how does weight loss work? Well, it all comes down to energy balance. That's gonna determine whether you lose or gain weight. And if you eat fewer calories than you burn, you're going to end up losing weight. And you can do this either by restricting the amount of food you're eating or by exercising more and increasing energy expenditure or some combination of the two. And when you do that, you go into negative energy balance and then you lose weight. Now to gain weight, you're going to eat more calories than you burn. And that's going to put you in positive energy balance. Okay, so all of that sounds really simple, right? Really straightforward. Calories in, calories out. I know you guys hear that all the time. Just eat less, move more. And while that seems really simple and straightforward on the surface, it's actually a lot more complex than it sounds like. And that's because there are all these factors that affect how much you eat and how many calories you take in and also how many calories you burn. So let's go through some of those real quick. So the first thing is appetite. Hormones um, send a message to your brain, right? That you're either full or hungry. And there's tons of these hormones. In fact, I think as of 2017, there are about 13 that had been discovered. But for our purposes, we're gonna talk about two of the most common ones, which is leptin and ghrelin, and we'll get to that later in the presentation. Then there's the food environment that can determine how much you eat. So for example, there are social influences. People tend to eat less when they're alone, but when they're around friends and family, they tend to eat more. And if you have friends who love to go out and eat or like to go out drinking occasionally, odds are that you're gonna go with them to do that and you're gonna end up eating more. Or we can all relate to this. Maybe you have that grandparent that loves to feed you and they just won't take no for an answer, right? So you end up eating more. And then there's where you live. If you live in an environment where there are a lot of convenience stores, fast food stores, but there aren't really as many healthy food options or traditional grocery stores, then you might end up eating more calories because you tend to eat what's most convenient and what's closest. Then there's the psychology of eating. So some people eat more for survival, where others are eating more for pleasure and enjoyment, or maybe they go out and eat socially and they love doing that. And then there are people who eat emotionally. So people who tend to eat more for enjoyment or reward, um, those are the people who tend to end up eating a little bit more. And then finally, there's the absorption of food. A lot of people think just because you're eating a food, that means you're gonna get all the calories, but that's just not true. 
And absorption is impacted by things like food processing and the gut bacteria you have. So with food processing, the more processed the food tends to be, the more calories you're going to tend to absorb from that. So to give you an example of this, let's say you're eating broccoli. If you cook the broccoli first, odds are you're going to be breaking down some of those cell walls that um, are surrounding the calories in this. And when that happens and those break down, then your body can access the calories inside. So you're going to absorb more of that. And the same works with like almonds versus almond butter. If you're eating just almonds, your body's going to have a hard time extracting all of those calories. But if it's all broken down and it's in the form of a butter, odds are you're going to be able to get more of those calories. And then there's gut bacteria. And we are really just in the infancy of exploring this right now. We barely scratched the surface. But we know that there are many, many different colonies of gut bacteria, and they kind of have a little bit different roles. Some of them are better at breaking down food than others, and those ones are able to help you extract more calories from that food, so you'll be absorbing more. All right, so those are all of the things that impact how many calories your body actually gets to use. But now we're going to talk about calorie expenditure, and this is determined by four major things. The first is basal metabolic rate. Also, we'll be referring that to that throughout the presentation as just BMR. And that refers to the calories used at rest just to help your body function. For example, to fuel your organs, um, to help your brain think, to push blood around your body, circulate blood, and also to breathe. And then there's exercise activity. So this is going to include the calories that you use to move around doing planned structured activities such as going on a run, swimming, or just going to the gym. And then there's something called NEAT. And the full word for this, or the full, that's just an acronym. But the whole thing is called non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And basically that refers to the energy burned doing things by fidget, like fidgeting, things that you no, normally don't consciously consider, um, things like pacing around or just maintaining your body posture doing activities of daily living, like cleaning your house or just walking to work. Those are calories burned through meat. And then there's the thermic effect of food. And what this is, is it's kind of the cost of metabolizing and breaking down food. So a certain number of calories are going to be used to do this. And that's going to differ depending on where that food is coming from. So it's going to be a little bit more if you're breaking down protein than if you're breaking down carbs or fats. So this is actually pretty complex because there are so many different factors that are going to affect energy balance here. And that can make it really, really hard to accurately predict how many calories you're taking in and how many calories you're burning. And that can lead some people to think, okay, well, since it doesn't seem to add up for me and I'm sure I'm in a calorie deficit, that means the calories don't really matter. This whole calories in, calories out thing can't possibly be true. But it is true. A calorie deficit is always what drives fat loss. And all diets work by reducing calories, whether a person is aware of it or not. So if you're not consciously trying to restrict calories, but you go on a diet and you end up losing weight, it can be really easy to point to some feature of that diet and think, hey, that's why I'm losing weight. It's not calories, right? It's this other thing. So for example, if you start a keto diet, you cut out all carbs, and then you magically lose weight, you end up thinking that it was the cutting of the carbs that caused you to lose weight and not the calories. But in reality, it was the calories. Now, all diets that work create a fat loss deficit or create a calorie deficit. And I have that shown on the infographic here. And this is the way that different diets work. So whether you're trying to restrict calories consciously or not, there's kind of these four ways that it can help you reduce calories without necessarily realizing it. And so one of those things is like with different plans like Weight Watchers or the Zone Diet or meal plans, those are all going to restrict the total amount of food you eat. So you end up eating less. And then there are the diets like keto, carnivore, or clean eating that restrict your food choices. And in that way, you're, you end up eating less. And then there's things like intuitive eating. And what that does is it aims to restrict or reduce the desire to binge and overeat. So by doing that, you may end up eating less. And then there's intermittent fasting, which restricts the time available to eat. 
And this can be really effective if you think about it, because you're probably going to end up eating less if you go uh, entire days without eating or if you skip certain meals. So that ends up being pretty effective. Okay, so now that we've really explored the science behind weight loss, let's talk a little bit about metabolism and what happens to that when you diet and lose weight. So this idea of metabolic adaptation has been around for quite some time. It's not really a new idea, but it really gained traction in the world's attention in 2016 when the New York Times published a study on the biggest losers. Okay. So for those of you guys who don't watch a lot of TV um, or didn't back in the day, The Biggest Loser was this TV show where contestants won cash prizes for losing the greatest amount of weight or the greatest percentage of their body weight. And this all happened in 30 weeks. And what we saw was contestants usually losing well over 100 pounds. And they would do these things like crazy crash dieting or exercising pretty much all day. Some of them were able even to get into a calorie deficit as large as 3,500 calories a day. And if the math would hold up, I mean, that's like a pound of fat a day. That's incredible. So yeah, people would end up losing just this huge, massive amount of weight. And what the study on these people showed is that even six years afterwards, after regaining a good chunk of the weight they lost, their metabolism had slowed down. So if you compared the amount of calories they were burning to someone who had never dieted, a lot of these people were burning hundreds of calories fewer than they should have been or that would have been predicted just based on their body weight alone. So that led people to really think about this whole dieting thing and man, what's going on here? Okay, so that leads us to ask, is metabolic adaptation a real thing? And so, yeah, it is. But what we need to understand is that metabolic rate does drop during dieting. And part of that's perfectly normal and expected. So if you look here at this graphic on the lower left, um, what that shows is the different compartments of energy expenditure. And you can see that when dieting, BMR is going to make up the bulk of that at around 70% of the total calories burned each day. Neat, thermic effect of food and exercise activity, each of those is going to make up about 10%. And all of these are affected by weight loss. Every single one of them, you end up burning fewer calories and that's normal. So let's talk about how, let's talk about how that works. So with BMR, that's going to drop simply because you are losing metabolically active tissue. Your organs are shrinking and these would normally take a lot of calories just to exist. So they get smaller. They don't require as many calories just to exist. And then there's muscle. A lot of people lose muscle when they diet and that's very metabolically active as well. So BMR goes down. Now meat and exercise expenditure can also go down, which is normal because if you think about it, if you're losing weight, you have less body weight to move around. So an analogy I like to use with this is if you were to drive 500 miles in like a semi truck or a Toyota Camry, which do you think would require more fuel? Of course, the semi truck is going to require more fuel, right? Because it's a lot larger, it's a lot heavier to move. Same goes with a human body. So when you drop weight, you end up burning fewer calories um, for a given amount of work when you're exercising or just doing activities around the house. And then there's the thermic effect of food. That's going to drop as well, simply because you're eating less food overall. But all that said, there is a certain amount of adaptation that occurs beyond what would be expected just based on a loss in body weight, lean body mass, and shrinkage of organs, for example. And that's developed as this mechanism to protect the body against starvation. And what it does is it aims to close that energy gap. Um, to reduce the calorie deficit. And it does this by slowing metabolic rate and then promoting weight regain just to keep a person alive. And within the fitness community, that's loosely called metabolic adaptation. But in the literature, the um, official name for it is adaptive thermogenesis. So we'll be referring to it as that throughout this for the most part. Now, what's important to understand is that BMR drops the most out of all these compartments. BMR can drop by as much as 10 or 15%. And that occurs because your fat cells are getting smaller, 
so you're secreting less leptin that works to kind of drop this metabolic rate also you experience drops in thyroid hormone um, so these things that occur are normal and even sympathetic nervous system tone starts to drop so your heart beats slower things like that so you know energy expenditure in the form of bmr does go down now if you take two people who have the same biometrics and weight the one who never dieted is usually going to have a higher bmr so as an example let's say you have a client that's 200 pounds and they're burning 1600 calories a day just to keep their organs alive and stuff like that and then after their diet after they lose 50 pounds and now they're 150 pounds their bmr is 1200 calories a day okay so it drops but if you compare that to a person who's 150 pounds and they didn't achieve that weight by dieting their bmr is going to be about 1400 calories a day so you can see that the person who never lost weight tends to have a higher bmr so that begs the question does this adaptation persist over the long term and at first especially several years ago when that study on the biggest loser came out we thought oh no this is definitely a permanent thing but it turns out that a lot of these studies that were showing that weren't really that well controlled in terms of whether a person was in energy balance at that time or how long they had been in that sort of energy balance okay so now newer studies that control that and make sure that a person is eating more to stabilize their new body weight tends to show that adaptation may dissipate with time and refeeding so your metabolism may bounce back a little bit okay and that leads to the next question you guys may have heard this being in the fitness industry there's, there's this really pervasive claim that if you lose weight too quickly that's going to cause your metabolism to basically come to a standstill. So people are like, you know, don't do that. But surprisingly, the degree of adaptation has not been consistently tied to the rate of weight loss. So to illustrate this, there was a study done on six obese men who lost 10% of their body weight over either three or six weeks. And what they saw is that the drop in RMR was actually greater and those people who lost weight more slowly over the six weeks. So that definitely does, does not come together. Um, also, it's been seen that the rate of weight loss has not been associated with weight regain. And that isn't generally what we would expect to see. We would expect to see um, if somebody did uh, lose weight more quickly and that caused metabolism to slow more, we would expect that they would have a harder time keeping lost weight off. We don't see that, okay? So what we do see though, is that adaptation tends to be highly individualized and it may be actually related more to the total amount of weight loss than anything else but again more research needs to be done to tease this out and i think what we'll talk about later too is that again adaptation tends to be individualized it varies a lot from person to person some people may not you know have a have their metabolism slow very much at all and other people experience a pretty drastic slowing Okay, so we talked all about BMR and how BMR drops in response to dieting and weight loss. But what about exercise? How is exercise affected? Well, it turns out that this happens with exercise expenditure as well. And part of it's normal. Again, there's this lower energy cost to move a lighter body. We had talked about the whole example of the semi versus the Toyota Camry. But studies actually show that energy expenditure can drop more than expected just based on that, more than predicted. And this is because skeletal muscle efficiency increases and that reduces the calories burned. Um, so what do I mean by that? Let's give you an example. Let's say that you have a client that's 200 pounds and then they lose weight and ultimately they end up losing 50 pounds. So now their new weight is 150 pounds. So if they add a weight vest of 50 pounds so that they're 200 pounds again, what we see is that their energy expenditure with um, exercise and doing a given amount of work is still lower than it was before dieting, despite the fact that they're the same weight. You know, so, so that's really interesting. So we do see this disproportionate slowing of metabolism in terms of exercise. And then of course there's fatigue, right? So just imagine that you're on this really strict calorie diet and you've had a long day at work 
when you get home, do you think you're going to want to go to the gym? Probably not. And if you do end up going, you're probably going to work out with less intensity, which results in burning fewer calories. So when people diet, they tend to experience more fatigue. They tend to get more lethargic. They don't, they don't go to the gym as much. And when they do, they work out less hard. So all of that combines to kind of reduce the energy expended through exercise. And we also see this happen through meat, right? So calories through meat tend to drop with dieting for similar reasons as exercise. But what we see is that the individual variation with how a body responds to dieting in terms of meat is very, very different, very different across people. Um, so to illustrate this, uh, let's look at the study here. So in this study, 16 people were overfed by 1,000 calories a day for eight weeks straight. So to put that in perspective, that means that researchers were feeding them the amount that they needed just to maintain their weight, right? So a normal amount of food. And then they added a thousand calories on top of that. So these guys were eating a ton of food. And what researchers saw is that some people reduced their meat energy expenditure by hundred calories, even when being overfed. And other people just got really active. They started moving a lot more, fidgeting a lot more, pacing, and they ended up burning 700 calories off just from meat, 700 extra calories. Um, so that meant that fat gain between these individuals varied from one to nine pounds. And this kind of makes sense if you think about it, because you know we talk about people who basically can smell food and gain weight, right? And those probably are the people who, uh, when, eat, when overeating, don't tend to increase their meat expenditure. And then there are other people and you're like, man, this person can eat whatever they want and they don't gain weight. Those are probably the people that experience the greatest expenditure in meat in response to overeating. They just end up moving more and burning those calories off. Okay. And research kind of supports this and shows that changes in meat seem to largely be driven by genetics. So there's this really cool study done in pairs of twins. And what it showed was that, um, in response to being overfed, there was more of a difference um, between pairs of twins than there was within pairs of twins when it came to weight change. So, so pairs of twins within a pair, they generally lost or gained the same amount of weight. Whereas if you compared that to completely different pairs of twins, there was a huge variance in that. So, so that just shows the power that genetics can have in all this. And interestingly, um, it's the people who respond the most to overfeeding by increasing their exercise that also tend to, we also tend to see the lowest drop in meat when they're going on a diet. So what that means is that there are some people who are just, you know, really resistant to weight gain with overfeeding. And those same people respond really well to diets and have great success. So a lot of this comes down to meat. And I, I can't, I can't overstate the importance of meat right now in terms of um, energy balance and helping you keep lost weight off. And we'll talk more about that a little bit later in the presentation again. Okay, so, sorry, went one slide up there. Going back, um, that begs the question here. We've talked all about how metabolism can slow in response to weight loss. So does that mean that starvation mode is real? Well, starvation mode and the way that most people think about it is not a real thing. So when most people think about starvation mode, they think about eating very little and then having metabolism crawl basically to a halt to stop all weight loss or so that that person will even gain some weight. And that just doesn't happen because there is a limit to how low metabolism can drop. And if there wasn't, we would never see people like in war-torn countries starve to death and Sadly, we do. That, that does happen. So it's important to understand that there's a limit to how far metabolism can drop. And even in the most severe cases, that tends to be around 10 to 15% in terms of BMR. And that equates to um, a drop of 5 to 7% in total energy expenditure. So the total calories burned drops by literally like maybe 7% on an extreme end. Um, and then we also see that most metabolic adaptation is reached at 10% of weight loss. And if you lose weight beyond that, metabolism doesn't seem to slow much more. 
Okay, so the fact that there's this limit is does make it a little bit more hopeful. And that's not to say that weight loss doesn't become more challenging for people who experience these greater levels of adaptation. Of course it does. It definitely becomes more challenging, but that doesn't mean that it's impossible. Okay. So we have talked a whole lot about uh, metabolic rate and the calories out part of our energy balance equation. And now we're gonna talk about the calories in part, specifically about hormonally mediated increases in hunger and uh, the widespread av availability of these convenient, delicious, high calorie foods. So let's start here with hunger. Weight loss leads to changes in hormones that affect appetite and promote weight regain. So leptin, and remember how I told you guys that we we're gonna talk about two of the appetite hormones, even though there are a ton that affect energy balance and hunger, um, we're just gonna talk about leptin and ghrelin today to kind of illustrate what's going on here. So let's focus on leptin. Leptin is known as the satiety hormone, meaning that it can signal a sense of fullness to the brain. And it reflects long-term energy stores. So if you look at this graphic here, um, what we see is that leptin is secreted from your fat cells. And when you gain weight and your fat cell volume increases and your fat cells get bigger, that increases leptin levels. So you secrete more leptin and that can act to suppress appetite. And on the flip side, when you lose weight and your fat cell volume gets smaller, you secrete less leptin and that acts to increase appetite. So generally what we see with weight loss as the fat cells are getting smaller is that we see lower levels of leptin. So that's gonna cause you just to feel more hungry. Now let's talk about ghrelin. So ghrelin is known as the hunger hormone, meaning that it acts to stimulate hunger. And it's a short-term regulator of energy balance. So if you look at the graph here, um, basically what happens is most of the ghrelin is secreted from the stomach. And what we see is that immediately after meals, ghrelin levels drop. And then they start to rise. And they rise more and more and more until the next meal. And they stimulate hunger, you know, until you eventually eat again, and then they drop again. So we kind of see this cyclical thing going on with it. And what's important to know is that after somebody achieves weight loss, they tend to secrete more ghrelin. So they go around, you know, feeling more hungry. And uh, the changes to the hormones leptin and ghrelin can persist even a year or more after someone's achieved a new lower body weight. So we're gonna look at the study here. And in the study, 34 overweight women lost 30 pounds in 10 weeks on a very low calorie diet, okay? And researchers measured leptin and ghrelin levels immediately before the diet started, immediately after the diet ended, and then a year after the diet ended. And if I could direct your attention to this graph here, um, what this shows is ghrelin levels in a four hour window after eating. And you can see that ghrelin levels were much higher at week 10 after the diet ended than they ever were before the diet started. And then a year after the diet ended, you can see that the levels still hadn't bounced back to normal. They still hadn't dropped to where they were before dieting, even though these women put on a lot of the weight that they lost. They put back on weight. And it still wasn't the same as it was before dieting. And we also see that leptin doesn't really bounce back completely. So at the end of the diet, leptin levels were 65% lower than they were at the start. And a year after the diet ended, they were still 35% lower. So there's this change in hunger hormones that persists after the new body weight is achieved. And this can stay that way for quite a while. All right. So this massive increase in hunger combines with the widespread, widespread availability of very delicious, very convenient, high calorie food to promote weight regain. Now, food is engineered to be hyper palatable. That's no surprise, right? I mean, I don't know if you guys remember the Lay's commercial that was Bet You Can't Eat Just One. I think Shaq was in that commercial. And then there was, and I might be dating myself on this, but I'm old enough to remember Pringles commercials and their slogan was, once you pop, you can't stop. 
So food is specifically engineered to be addicting, right? Because these companies, they want to get you to rely on the food. They want you to eat a lot of it. They want you to buy a lot of it. They want their sales to go up. And so they have food scientists meet in a lab and actually combine the perfect amount of salt, sugar, fat, and carbs that's going to make your brain say, yes, this is amazing. I want more of this. And they even look at things like mouthfeel and texture, and they get that perfect texture in there. Okay. So, and not to say that all companies do that. Some are focused on health foods and trying to make things that are healthier and with lower calories, but there are inevitably a ton of companies that, you know, will do anything to make their taste, their food taste good. And that's usually making them high calorie and delicious. So there's this perfect storm for fat gain that emerges because you have this really hyper palatable, delicious food that we just talked about that's created by food scientists. We have this high variety of foods and studies have shown that if you combine a lot of different flavors in the same meal with a lot of different food choices, people tend to eat more. And then there's the convenience of it, right? It's everywhere. And what we have the easiest access to, we tend to eat the most. And then of course, all this food is really high calorie and it's cheap. And when you combine all these things with this ravenous hunger, man, it's really hard to keep lost weight off. Okay, so what do we do about this? Is there anything we can do? Well, luckily for us, there are strategies for increasing successful weight loss maintenance. There are things that you can do for your client that can help them keep lost weight off. So we're going to talk about all that next. So the seven things we're going to talk about is number one, don't stay on dieting calories. Two, make meat conscious. Three, you're going to want to continue to have your client exercise, which is good news for you as trainers. Four, you want your clients to adopt a flexible eating strategy. Five, you want them to adopt a flexible mind, a flexible mindset if you can help them with that. And we'll discuss how to do that. Six is you want to monitor them frequently and you want to teach them some self-monitoring tactics. And then seven, you want to sit down with them and form relapse prevention strategies. Okay, so let's go over each of these, starting with don't stay on dieting calories. All right, I'm going to take a, a, a quick drink here. Okay, so just as metabolism can slow when dieting, it can also speed up when you return to a higher calorie intake. So there used to be this idea, like we were talking about, that metabolism doesn't bounce back after you reach your new body weight. But newer studies that are controlling whether you're in energy balance or not are showing that metabolic adaptation is just kind of this illusion that's present when you're still in a calorie deficit. But when you increase calories so that you're no longer in this negative energy balance and you're meeting your maintenance needs and you do with that for a long enough time your bmr can bounce back and we see that with competitors who just finished fitness shows right they have this lower basal metabolic rate they tend to have lower levels of testosterone and thyroid hormone but as as they increase their calories again and as a lot of time passes since doing the show those start to bounce back now it might take upwards of six months, but for most people, it does bounce back. And then also, meat can increase dramatically with overfeeding. And we talked about that and, and showed one of those studies a little bit earlier. So if you're one of these individuals that tends to increase meat expenditure with overfeeding, you can be a hyper-responder to increasing calories. Now, reverse dieting has emerged in the fitness industry as one way to prevent overshooting your needs and increasing body weight with increasing calories. Because if you just went back to eating what you were before you lost weight, you might gain the weight back, right? You probably would. So you're going to need to be conscious of this. So basically what reverse dieting is, is exactly what it sounds like. It's a diet in reverse. So instead of cutting calories, you're slowly increasing calories over time. So you might increase calories by, say, 50 uh, to 100 calories a week until you reach new maintenance levels where your weight is still stable and you're getting enough food to keep your 
uh, body weight where it is and still have energy to work out pretty hard. And the, the major benefit of this is that it allows you to find those new maintenance calories without immediately going over them and putting on all the weight that you lost back on, right? So it helps people not regain weight because you probably don't know exactly what your maintenance calories are gonna be after you lose weight. We talked about how metabolism slows down. So there's kind of this gray area where you're guessing. So if you're slowly increasing calories over time until you hit a point where weight's stable, you can prevent regaining lost weight. And that's what we see here with reverse dieting. You can see this graph and that's kind of how it works. So let's say that a client ends their diet on 2000 calories, a male client. And um, immediately afterwards, you're going to want to probably boost calories back up by a couple hundred. So maybe now they're at 2,200 or 2,300. And the reason you want to do that is because you don't want them to stay in a huge calorie deficit any longer than they need to. That's not good for health. We already talked about how testosterone levels and thyroid hormone levels can be lower after dieting. So you kind of want to start to bring those up. And that calorie boost right at the beginning of a reverse diet can be really powerful and helping to do that. And then from there, you'll increase your calories in a stepwise fashion each week until you reach a new maintenance level. Now, some of you guys who are familiar with the concept of reverse dieting might wonder, you know, well, how could it be that someone eats more after they, they get new calories and they reach this new stability after a reverse, how can they be eating more than they were before they were dieting? Because some people do. And probably what's happening here is that this person is a hyper responder to overeating in terms of need expenditure. So they end up moving around a lot more. They were lethargic when they were dieting, but now that they're getting more calories, they're able to hit it harder at the gym. They're able to put on more muscle with their workouts. They're burning more calories. So they're erasing that calorie deficit quickly and just burning more calories. And that can really push the amount of food you're eating up. And then also, if you spend enough time reverse dieting and your protein levels are high enough and, you know, and you're really hitting it hard at the gym, people can put on a lot of muscle. And that's going to require energy just to exist. And it's going to require more energy to to fuel that muscle while working out, right? So they're going to end up burning a lot more calories in this. And so it could be entirely possible that someone ends up burning more calories after reverse dieting than they were before they started a reverse. It's simply not the rule all the time. You know, this doesn't happen that often, but it's also not magic. It's explained by an increase in meat and being able to really change your body composition and put on muscle. All right. So don't allow your client to stay on dieting calories any longer than they need to. Get them out of that deficit and let's get metabolism kind of rebooted, right? The second thing is you really want to encourage them to make meat a more conscious thing. And by definition, meat is kind of subconscious, right? It's the things that you don't really notice, all the pacing, all the fidgeting, how you posture your body. But if you can make it more conscious, this can increase the number of calories your client burns. Um, and so it, what's important to understand is that increasing meat is more manageable than increasing structured exercise. And that makes sense when you think about it, right? Because a lot of people are very intimidated of going to the gym. If you ask them to go to the gym, they might not do it. That level of intensity, you know, is just like uh, a scary thing for them. But if you're asking people, hey, why don't you park further away from like the mall or or your work or just walk to work or always take the stairs and just maybe go on a walk at night with your dog, that's a lot more manageable for people. And they're going to tend to stick to that. Um, it's a lot lower hurdle than asking someone to do, you know, 45 minutes on the stairmaster each day. And the truth is that meat can greatly contribute to the total calories you burn in a day. And oftentimes even more than the calories burned through exercise. So if you look at the graph here up on the upper right, you can see some of the calories burned by activity each hour. Okay, so in this case, um, you have 200 calories burned by an hour of stair climbing. If you're walking one, two, or three miles an hour, you're burning 70, 150, or 220 calories during that hour. And all of this stuff, if done enough, can really add up. And, and this can account for differences in up to 2,000 calories a day between people. So if you look at people like of different career paths, like 
say, construction workers or personal trainers, and you compare the amount of energy they expend to the amount of energy someone like maybe a developer, computer engineer expends, you're going to see that the people who are like personal trainers earn a ton more calories. Okay, and that all comes down to meat. And then if you look at obese versus lean people, we also see that obese people tend to have lower expenditures of meat. Um, so if you look at the graph here on the lower right, that shows the time spent lying, sitting, and standing and walking between lean and obese people. And what you can see is that lean and obese people tend to spend about the same amount of time laying down each day, but obese people tend to sit two and a half hours more than lean people, and they also tend to stand and walk about two hours less. So you can see that meat is really tied to um, being overweight. So I would highly encourage you guys to have your clients track their steps, you know, make that visible. There are all sorts of different types of like Apple watches and Fitbits, and it becomes really easy just to have this thing that's with you all the time. And it's reminding you to stand up or track your steps. I find that that for me has been really helpful um, because I have an Apple watch. And then also encourage them to walk more. It's so funny when people pull up to the gym, they're always like hunting for the closest parking spot. And it's like, you're there to exercise. And people just don't realize and they don't think about it, but walking into the gym is still considered exercise. So, you know, encourage people to park further away, to walk whenever they can, to go on walks at night and to take stairs over the elevator. All of this can really, really add up. It's very important in keeping lost weight off. And then this is good news for you guys as trainers, but you really want to encourage clients to continue exercising at the same level that they were, or at least a similar level as they were when they were trying to lose weight. Um, because continuing to exercise is a major predictor of successful weight maintenance. Uh, and if you think about it, when somebody starts to diet, oftentimes they'll take their exercise from levels of zero to 100 overnight. They're so highly motivated. They start seeing the weight come off and they start increasing activity levels even more. And it's kind of the cycle where they just get really excited. But then after the diet ends, they're so burnt out, they don't want to do anything. And that's why I highly encourage people to exercise in a more manageable way when they're losing weight, not to go from zero to 100. You know, it's not really necessary. You want to keep your exercise and your cardio levels up but it needs to be manageable. Let the diet do most of the work. That way, when the diet's finished and you no longer have that same level of motivation, you're not so burnt out that the idea of exercise like makes you just want to scream. You are, you're still able and willing to exercise, right? So that's important. And also good news for you guys is that lifting weight has been shown to reduce skeletal muscle efficiency. So earlier we talked about how the human body responds to losing weight by uh, burning fewer calories for a given amount of work, right? It, it, even more than would be predicted by just weight going down. Um, and so efficiency has been shown to increase by as much as 20% when dieting. So what does that mean? Well, if you have a client who is 150 pounds, okay, but they've never really dieted, um, they might burn like, let's say, 100 calories to walk a mile. And I, I have no idea whether that's realistic or not. This is just for the purposes of my example. But that person might burn 100 calories to walk a mile. Now, if you have that same client who achieved their 150-pound weight by losing a whole bunch of weight, they might only burn 80 calories to walk that mile. And what lifting weights has been shown to do is close that gap. So it can partially reverse that and get you up to burning 100 calories again. So lifting weight is like is really important. And then also you want to find a way to make exercise enjoyable. If it feels like a chore to, to your clients or you, if you're trying to keep lost weight off, you're really not going to want to do it, right? So if you're having your client, um, maybe you're encouraging them to do cardio outside of your weightlifting sessions. Maybe have them try doing something like Zumba or like a group fitness class, something that's going to be fun to them. It's not going to be seen necessarily as exercise, right? It's just dancing. Or if you're not able to lift weights with them, um, like say three or four times a week and you're only working with them like twice a week, 
whenever they do lift weights and they're not with you, maybe encourage them to do it with a partner. That's going to get them in the gym. So whatever you can do to make it fun is what you want to do. And then you'll also want to encourage them to adopt a flexible eating strategy. Because ironically, depriving yourself of food to prevent binging usually sets people up for binging, okay? Because you're just giving that food so much more power in your mind if you say that you can't have it. It's kind of like a kid where, you know, a little toddler, where you take their toy away and then it's like they obsess about it and that's the only toy they want. It's that same thing with the brain, even with adults and food, okay? And extreme diet rules, they're likely to backfire, right? Like saying no carbs ever. These are things you're not going to necessarily continue to do after the weight is lost because you may not have access to the foods that are on limits or that are considered healthy for you. And you're probably going to be exposed to foods that aren't on your okay approved list, right? So you don't want to ever have extreme diet rules. Um, and then you want to be able to apply your knowledge of weight loss principles to maintain weight. And we just learned how calories are really the thing that's going to drive weight loss. So you shouldn't be afraid to eat foods that are considered off limits. Yeah, these little treats might be higher calorie, but as long as you stay within those calorie needs, you're not going to put on weight. And this is really helpful because then when people end up eating things that they know are treats or high calorie, they don't punish themselves and they don't beat themselves up. So that's huge. And so I highly encourage people to follow this 80-20 rule, meaning that 80% of the food you should aim to eat is whole foods, your healthy foods, rich in vitamins and minerals, that sort of thing. And that's your 20% is maybe treats. And that's really powerful because it helps you to satisfy cravings while still getting enough of the food that are going to, that's going to help keep you full and that's going to meet your requirements for fiber and vitamin and minerals. But it also allows you to live a little bit, right? And dieting, like, eating food takes up a great amount of your life and life shouldn't revolve around dieting. So you really need to have a flexible eating strategy. That said, you also should encourage clients to adopt a flexible mindset. So this rigid, all or none, black and white mentality can really set people up for weight gain. And the research is very clear about that. Um, perfect, perfectionism, it's generally associated with guilt and binging because no one is going to be perfect. So it's really important to manage your client's expectations, right? Um, to let them know, you know, hey, perfectionism, 100% of the time, that's not realistic, right? And so if you're managing their expectations and they know they're not going to be perfect and they're going to have some lapses here and there, then that's kind of setting up this game plan where slip-ups are part of the plan, right? I mean, that's part of the plan. It's going to happen. It's what you do afterwards that matters. Don't beat yourself up for it. Just get back on the wagon. Just keep going, right? So you're kind of really helping them get this flexible mindset that's going to help them to not necessarily punish themselves and binge. And at that same, you know, on that same note, help them recognize maladaptive thoughts and coping behaviors. So you don't want your client to beat themselves up when they make a mistake. You know, that, that doesn't help anybody. And, and you don't want them to say bad things to themselves. And I'm not this and I'm not that, or I'm this or I'm that. No, like they should have healthy thoughts about themselves. And you also want to help them recognize coping behaviors that are maladaptive. So for instance, if they make a little mistake and fall off the wagon, some people tend to go on a five day binger, um, right? Or maybe they starve themselves and go to the gym for hours. We don't want that. We, we want some, we want more flexibility. Just tell them to get back on the wagon and we'll adjust things from there. And also frequent monitoring needs to happen. You need to check in with them frequently and you need to teach them self monitoring techniques because regular monitoring intervention and support is absolutely critical after a diet ends and helping to keep that lost weight off. And this has been shown in study after study. So, um, those who attend maintenance visits following a diet tend to have greater success than those who don't. You can see that on the graph on the right. The people who over the 15 month period had maintenance visits were able to keep almost all the weight they lost off. 
Compare that to the people who didn't do any maintenance visits, the blue line. You can see that those people regained about half the weight they lost. So maintenance visits and checking in with people and providing that support is huge. Also, you want to encourage, encourage your clients to occasionally check their weight, log foods, and maybe track calories or macros. And checking weight occasionally, like even if it's only once a week, is really important because it allows you and your client to detect changes uh, that are small, right? Changes in their weight that are really small before they get too big and overwhelming. And so at that point, you can just rope things back in really quickly. You don't have to go on a diet, like a full diet again for months. You can just, you know, get a little structured for the next week or two. And um, on that same note, logging foods occasionally, even if you're not logging the serving size, has been shown, has been shown to be connected to greater weight maintenance. And that's because it increases a sense of awareness about the types of food you're eating. And that can be really important, this awareness. And on that same note, tracking calories or macros kind of, kind of works similar in that they're increasing awareness about how much you're eating and the types of food you're eating, right? So you kind of get both of that in there, the types and how much. And that can be super helpful. And then when you combine this very heightened awareness with greater nutrition knowledge and you understand the science behind weight loss and that it really comes down to calories, this really puts people at ease because now you know exactly what to do if you start putting on weight again. You can rein things back in very quickly if weight goes up. There's no mysteries here. And then finally, the last thing is that you really want to sit down with your client and form relapse prevention strategies. So what do I mean by this? Okay, I mean that maybe you'll have a meeting with them and you'll ask them, what types of situations do you anticipate that are going to be high risk for you where you might end up slipping up and putting some of the weight on again? What are these? Okay, and so maybe your client says, you know, I really like to go out on the weekends. My friends go out and drink. They have a lot of barbecues. Weekends are the time I unwind from work. I'm afraid that I'm going to overeat and sabotage myself. So you'll establish a contingency plan for that. And you'll be like, okay, let's imagine that that happens. So what we might want to do is instead of beating yourself up, maybe just eat a little bit less the next day and start tracking your food just for a few days, get back on track and make sure that you hit all your exercise that week. Don't beat yourself up about it. Just get right back on the way again, rope it back in and move on. And then one of the other things you can do is establish a weight threshold threshold. And when you hit that, that activates contingency strategies. So for myself, I like to maybe run right around 130 to 133 pounds. So if I hit like 136 pounds, and I put that as my weight threshold, when I hit that, I know that I'm going to need to start tracking my macros again, okay, because that's the technique I use. Maybe you guys use with your clients something different, but you're just paying more attention to the types of food you're eating and maybe eating a little bit more healthy, low calorie focus, right? But you want to really activate these contingency strategies. And then you also want to identify challenges that your clients face when it comes to eating and develop coping mechanisms for those. So for example, maybe your client struggles with emotional eating. Okay, so you want to encourage them to be very mindful about that, very aware of the triggers, very aware when it's happening, and then try to put something in place to deal with that, some alternate strategy that doesn't involve eating, like, you know, maybe calling a friend or going on a walk instead or treating themselves by taking a relaxing bath instead of treating themselves by eating food. So kind of putting a new habit in place. All right. So I know we've talked about a whole lot in this and hopefully it was helpful, but let's do a quick recap and talk about what I really want you to take away from this presentation. And of course, the first thing is that a calorie deficit drives fat loss. It all comes down to calories. Now you guys understand the science behind weight loss. The second thing is you really want to be aware of the factors that make weight loss maintenance hard, and you can educate your clients on this. So the number one thing, of course, is a lack of nutrition knowledge and people falling into the trap of doing traditional restrictive diets and diet fads. The second thing tends to be a reduction in metabolic rate. That does happen, but again, it's limited. 
And hopefully, if you do the right things afterwards, you can get it to bounce back to at least a certain degree. Then there's hormonally mediated increases in hunger that kind of trick your brain into wanting to eat more. So you want to stay aware of that. And then that's combined with this widespread availability of convenient, delicious, high-calorie food. And then know that there are behavioral changes that you and your client can make that's going to set you guys up for success. The first thing is, of course, you don't want to stay on diet calories. Use some tactic to start eating uh, a healthy amount of food again that's not going to cause you to increase your weight and that's appropriate for your new stable body weight. A second one is make meat conscious. The third is make sure you continue to exercise and weightlifting can be really important in this. Fourth, adopt a flexible eating strategy and also adopt a flexible mindset. You need to monitor your client frequently and have them also monitor themselves. And finally, sit down with them and form relapse prevention strategies. Prevention is just so powerful. All right, guys. So here's my references. I know there are a lot. Um, this was very science heavy. And for those of you guys who are interested, take your screenshots there and you can read those articles. But again, you know, I'm the co-founder of Avatar Nutrition. You can follow me if you want at, and my handle on Instagram is at the underscore fit underscore dietitian. Um, my Instagram for my company is at Avatar Nutrition and our YouTube channel is Avatar Nutrition. And I know that I have this little lapse in posting things, but um, now that our Avatar Nutrition app is out, I am going to put a whole bunch more time into making new videos for you guys. So if you enjoyed this, follow me on my at the fit dietitian handle on Instagram, and hopefully you'll continue to learn a lot. Thank you.